0: Radio.
1: This week on Backroom Politics, what exactly is an Ebola czar and why does the GOP hate wrong claim? Then, state ballots, taxes on pot, gas, and millionaires, just a few of the issues that voters will consider on state ballots across the nation next month for the midterms. How will this impact the turnouts? Then, Supreme Court allows Texas voter ID laws, and why is this such a big deal? Finally, conservatives catch up as Super PAC, fundraising explodes. Who's going to come up on top and why are Super PACs relevant? That can tell me a story this week on backroom politics. Live from Shelley 's
2: Back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington DC this is backroom politics to join the discussion you can call toll free 1-877-662-3713 and now the moderator of backroom politics justin russell
1: And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox, former executive director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And... To my 11 o'clock across the table, she is Rebecca Coffin, mm-hmm. a great political operative in the youth community, and who do you work for, by the way?
3: Generation <laughs> That's
1: the one I was looking for. <laughs> Rebecca Coffin joins us across the table. Hello, Rebecca.
3: Hello, Jeff.
1: And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former general counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as the general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is... Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is the former uh, Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, hello. Happy Tuesday. <laughs> you shake your head when I introduce you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and to my right, ironically, he is... The bar-certified attorney here in D.C., Democratic
4: political operative, Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Justin. And even though you didn't concede to my request to have a fan here, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I'm sorry, Rick Scott. I apologize. Hey. (laughs)
1: It
2: needs to be on the floor.
1: It does need to be on the floor. It does. Yeah, exactly. It's cold. It's cold enough. It's cold enough. Hey, uh, lots of stuff to talk about, but we want to get started real quickly on the box. Uh, for those of you who did not see last week, uh, in response to the ever-growing uh, Ebola crisis hype, the administration appointed political operative Ron Klein as the Ebola czar for the White House. He is going to be in charge of managing the messaging, managing the operational effects on how the administration deals with Ebola. Uh, it is an odd pitch. Uh, I'm going to start off with you, Dan Lipner. The Obama administration went with a political instead of, I don't know, like an MD. Like, I don't know, maybe like the
4: Surgeon General or somebody from the medical community. I'm Um, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Justin. We have a Surgeon General? You mean Congress has actually allowed for a Surgeon General to be approved? They have.
1: They have. Believe it or not, we have a Surgeon General. We even have a public health service. Which I don't know. I could be wrong. We Alan's looking
4: at me like we don't have a surgeon general at the moment. We don't have a surgeon general no, no, because they no, haven't. They, they yes. can't get him approved through Congress. Oh, he no. We have, have an Senate. acting. We have an acting surgeon general, but not general. an actual. Not but surgeon not an girl. actually a Senate appointed. Okay,
1: minor technicality. So no. now you're gonna blame it on the Republicans. So. so What I'm hearing, though, but it still seems to me... Harry
2: Reid is the one in charge with the Senate schedule. (laughs) Harry Reid has not brought up the Surgeon General for consideration by the full Senate.
1: Okay, but good point. Alan Moore, which that will actually be a good talking point. But Dan Lipner, I'm the president. I'm the administration. I'm figuring that we've got a health crisis that we've got to look at. And who do I pick? Now, Now, let's get straight. Ron Claim's a great political mind. Ron Claim was the mindset behind the recount operation in Tallahassee back in 2000 and Bush v. Gore, uh, great political mind, but is he the guy you want as the operator running the Ebola? Well, his situation.
4: Well, first let's go. Ron Klain is more than just a political mind. He's also twice was a Supreme court clerk, uh, he, he, former chief of staff to both Al Gore and Joe Biden. He knows how government works. He's been around for a while. Uh, And as far as coordination for the Ebola issue, um, he's a fine pick. The, The history of czar appointments and why we have czars in this country is just a question in and of itself. The history of czar appointments has almost always been a political pick. Back when Bill Bennett was a drug czar, what qualifications did he have other than being a political hack? So th- this is par for the course. It's an opportunity for Republicans to throw bombs needlessly. There's no, there's nothing to suggest Ron Klain is not qualified to do this, nor is there anything to suggest that he is eminently qualified. He is in the line of people who hold czar positions in this country.
2: And Alan Moore? Yeah, I was about to agree with Dan, but then he sort of did Klain a disservice when he brought he, he brought up Bill Bennett and said, he, what else do you expect but a political hack? First of all, Bennett was a little more than that. But it undercuts your argument. I think the, the, your, your original argument, which, with which I would like to associate myself, is Klein is much more than a political operative. He has operated at very senior levels of government, at the very highest level. He knows where all the people are, where all the players are. His job is to coordinate. His job isn't to write medical protocols. we got plenty of doctors and medical experts to do that, to 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 bang heads and pull the district parts of government together, you need a guy who understands government, understands the White House, understands the levers of power, where to push, where to pull, where to adjust. And uh, I think he's a perfectly good pick in that regard. And, I, and secondly, uh, it, it seems likely, because he's been out of government for a while, um, that that uh, they're trying to bring him back in to Say so he does Ebola, and then there's some speculation that uh, he may uh, move into the council, the senior counselor role that that John Podesta, another very senior accomplished guy, temporarily back in the White House, who's expected to leave at the end of the year. Uh, there's some speculation that Clain may move from the Ebola role to the uh, the, the Podesta type right. role.
1: Uh, Not only
5: has um, has, uh, Ron been with the Supreme Court, he went he went with uh, Senator Gore in the 80s, and that's where I met him and dealt with him on qualifications. He 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 is trusted by Obama, which is very important to uh, the Obama administration. He he was uh, chief of staff to the vice president at some point, and he he knows the players and he knows. He, he's a, a good one who can kind of see things coming and which we don't have in the White House at this point. And he's uh, I think he's I think he's excellent for this job and as as um, Alan said <clears throat> there's talk of changes in the White House he could end up possibly as chief of staff to Obama during the last year or two or whatever.
1: Denise crap. I think he's a
3: good pick in that he knows where the bodies are and he knows how the government works. But what strikes me about the czar position is that you have a title and that's about it. You don't have an appropriated budget and you don't have an appropriated staff. And that's my concern right now with this position how much can he do? There needs to be a lot more coordination, I agree with you, because one department has difficulty trumping another. For example, health and human services would have difficulty trumping homeland security. Mm -hmm. So you need somebody to uh, play referee on the playground. But a lot of it's gonna be, you know, How much can he move just purely in the
4: positional power that he has? Hold on. Dan Lipner. Well, but that's one of the things that this position, as I understand it, is supposed to do. And something else that a political person brings to the table more than a general or even a doctor is also the understanding of the communications landscape, which part of the Ebola issue has been how to communicate with not only the various agencies that are at play, but also how to communicate with the press and the American public. And that, those multiple communications failures at the federal level, at the state level, even some of the hospitals, that have, that those failures have undermined people's confidence in the public health available in this country. And having a political person like Ron Klain, who also speaks with the authority that he has the trust and the ear of the president, to actually help things move and to balance all those issues simultaneously is actually a good choice. Rebecca Kaufman.
1: So
6: the thing with big government is that everything is political,
4: and this is a very clearly
6: political move on on the part of the White House, and I think we can all agree with that. Um, you touched upon the fact that there's speculation that he'll move into the administration in a, an official capacity after Ebola is solved or resolved in some way, hopefully. Um, I think it's important to note that we actually already had an Ebola czar. That didn't get a lot of um, coverage. Her name was Dr. Lurie. Um, I'm not sure what she's been doing. She literally had one job and apparently couldn't do it. That's fine. We've now replaced her. Um, I do think it's important for the person in this position to have an understanding of the political communications landscape and to play referee on the background. I think that um, the speculation that he doesn't have enough Understanding of the Ebola virus from a medical perspective is kind of just politicizing um but we already had someone in place to handle this, and i I want to see the media asking more where is that person? why wasn't she doing her job
1: go ahead alan moore yeah, i don't I don't
2: remember her role. I think she was at the c d c was she not um, I think so so the c d c has got the biggest responsibility domestically. DOD is spending more money as they go to uh, Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, the three hardest-hit West African countries, to set up these field hospitals. Homeland Security is responsible for all of this screening that's now going on in the five airports where previously most West Africans would come to the U.S., and they're trying to, make, they're trying to set up some procedures where anybody from West Africa coming to the States would have to go through one of those five airports where we now have the screening I'm not sure how you do that then we've got but 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 that's what they are trying to do and then you've got NIH that does the research on on the best science for treatment the possibilities of vaccine these are all multi-billion dollar operations and the the Republicans and others were saying you really need somebody in charge this is getting out of hand we've screwed it up in West Africa thank you World Health Organization and we screwed it up here in America thank you CDC for not getting on top of it you need somebody in charge somebody who could speak for the president so you need somebody inside the White House and this other woman was definitely not in the White House there was another woman in the White House named Lisa Monaco who has a whole host of responsibilities the idea was before this gets out of hand put somebody in charge the president resisted that We've got the CDC, Tom Frieden, the head of the CDC, uh, is on top of this. And then finally it was like, look, this is beginning to harm us politically. Let's put somebody in charge. And there are big players here who understands government, who can work this stuff. So you bring in a guy who knows a person, happens to be this guy, Ron Klain, who has been there, knows the the, 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 the pieces, and presumably, can, when he speaks, people will know he can speak for the president. It's true. He doesn't have an appropriation. He'll borrow some staff. But hopefully, or as be on top of this pretty clear. He was diagnosed by two of the people working with him, handling him, who, who weren't following proper protocols, became infected, they're both being treated. There are no other Ebola cases in America at yeah. the moment. Right. And yeah. so, and then well, the problems well, are in West Africa and uh, it, this is but,
1: a political move, but you have a, a good choice. But you have here. a situation, Rebecca Kaufman, where we're we're talking about Ron Claim, who has been named by Obama as the mind behind the Ebola management for the administration, Yet, at the same time, uh, the, uh, the House is having a hearing on Friday in front of uh, Chairman Darrell Issa's committee. This is something that Ron Klain not only will not be testifying at, but he's been notified, Chairman Issa and his staff has been notified that Claim will not even be in the room that day. If this guy is the mind behind the Ebola management and the Ebola response for the administration, why not put him in front? Is is this a calculated issue, or is this just something, he just doesn't need to be there?
6: Well, whenever I see a misstep from the Obama administration, I don't assume that it's calculated. I assume that it's coming from some sort of incompetence somewhere. I think that that President Obama wanted to calm the public. I think we saw a public outcry for some sort of leadership on this. It clearly wasn't going to be Obama himself. Who knows what the actual role, um, responsibilities, and expectations of this czar are. Um, that remains to be seen. It is good that um, <coughs> someone was appointed. We saw GOP cries for that. We saw public outcries for that. Someone, there needs to be some sort of um, figure leading this. But as to the actual roles, responsibilities, who knows? Carl
1: Tubman. You
5: will learn as you grow older, uh, that everything, <laughs> as grow older that everything in Washington is not political. Ron Klain is a super person and who was trusted by people in the administration, who has worked for great uh, um, people in, in this country. I mean, we have now, you know, to show how weak we are, we have um, we have a situation now where HHS threw their hands up. They They've had people coming to HHS for years saying, we've got problems in this country. We ought to have mobile hospitals. We ought to be able to treat these things. Ebola was part of it. They refused. So what did they do? Now, they have no emergency plan, and they had to go to, to
2: DOD to
5: ask them to take over. Well, oh,
2: and, uh, hold on. Carl, Carl, you're all over the place. Let, let just, in fairness to, <laughs> to <laughs> Rebecca, she didn't say Ron Klain was political. She said the White House is being political, and there is no question I'm that, damn that, thing that, is, that the it, White, is, White House, is what I thought you going to say is, if you're going to learn in this town, that everything has a political dimension to it, and this did too. He didn't want to uh, have, a, have a czar. He, he was under pressure to do so. I think it was necessary, politically necessary. I think he made a good choice. Ron Klain... A a, a smart, accomplished guy who is very savvy as a politician. Right. You don't get to be chief of staff to the vice president. If you're two, not vice a, president. two vice presidents. If you're not a pretty savvy political guy, but I want
1: to, I want to yeah, jump, jump in. I want to jump in and top of his class in Harvard Law School. Well, <laughs> I know a lot of people have a top of their class in Harvard Law School. Well, one a year. <laughs> I don't know how
2: many of them. No, no, have, no, no. But the, he was. His he was. Leader. He on the Supreme Court.
1: He's a very smart guy. Let me, let me, let me jump in on a couple of things because one, number one, I Carl, I agree with you. Ron claims are very sharp man, great guy. Uh, very politically savvy. I'm not even saying he's the wrong choice. But it just seems that the Republicans are taking pot shots at the decision. Wait a minute. Let me finish. It hasn't been taken? Sorry, that. shocking. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> let me finish. Let me finish. The other thing is, when you say that HHS threw its hands up and saying, wait a minute, we don't want this, HHS is neck deep in this. Who do you think the NIH and the CDC work for? Well, I, they work for HHS. This,
5: but there was part of HHS that had the opportunity to prepare for something like this and
1: they I can, the I can tell you right now. Be careful with that, Carl? Carl. Carl, Carl, I can tell you from I can tell you from personal I had experience with it. Carl, I can tell you from being mm-hmm. in the response industry for over fifteen years and working with organizations like the CDC, their response plan is in place. They have done this whether it was anthrax back in the early two thousands, late nineties, whether it was uh uh, whether it was avian flu back in the middle 2000s, they have done this and they do it. What has caught them off guard is the idea of, wait a minute, we have something that seems to mutate, hasn't gone airborne, but has a 21-day incubation cycle, and if it gets to full fruition, it's well, it's yeah, lights no, out. Yeah, I let agree with you.
3: You're giving CDC and HHS and some of the others more credit than I would at this point in time. Trust me. I did oversight over them on the avian flu, and I know some of the weaknesses that Carl is talking about. They aren't ready. It's getting so bad right now around the country that doctor's offices are having conversations of, what happens if an Ebola patient knocks on my door? Do I let him in? Right now, let's, CDC hasn't even given them guidance. I mean, we are having some very significant conversations without higher-level guidance, and if that higher-level guidance doesn't start coming in soon, we're going to have some significant problems right. in the medical community. I don't believe
4: let's, I'm defending the administration no, on let's this. Let's also be clear. Well, and I have no doubt what Denise said is correct, but a couple of. Th- go with a couple of facts that are at play here. One, the Ebola crisis is dying down. The right. incubation periods right. are, are 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 people are coming out of quarantine. Right. The two nurses are being taken care of. The last reports I've seen, the World,
1: World Health Organization took to Nigeria out, saying it was Ebola. Actually, actually, let's right.
4: be let's be clear. The, the the Ebola situation in this country. Right? No, 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 no. The, the
1: World Health Organization today.
5: Right. That's but that's. That's he
1: wasn't really, disputing it. Uh, uh,
4: right. Uh, right, but, uh, but specific, specifically in this country. So the political responses because of the hype and the various issues and the weak spots that have been seen in the our nationwide health responsibility is lacking. Mm. And arguably, you could say it is a small government problem because you have a private hospital in Texas. You have these multiple different levels of government agencies, people who have to opt voluntarily opt in to the feds actually having authority. You have these multiple different levels at play that you that the coordination is remarkably challenging. Right. So being able to do that and also keep the public at bay, which is what is going on as far as making sure the communication is being handled and people understanding that this is actually on the downward trend as far as it's being a crisis. It is a conversation that needs to be had as far as how we actually prepare For this type of crisis, because there are other bugs out there that can very well cross borders. Rebecca Kaufman.
6: Do you think what you just
3: described are classic symptoms of having too big a government?
4: Too small a government in this case. I
3: think what you're, and let's be careful about this, because the avian flu that I just described happened under the Bush administration but this is happening under both oh, the, the Bush, and the Bush grew, administration. The Bush
6: administration grew our, our federal government, to be clear. I mean,
4: yeah. everyone is in agreement. I, 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 and I and, and, and how, would, how would less professionals and less experts being involved actually make the situation better? If you want to make this a referendum in small government versus big government and actually having professionals who are fully aware and capable of dealing with such a situation, we can do that. But that's a different this conversation. Is, but
1: you're talking about a situation... Dan, where you're talking about a government that is working harder, not
4: smarter. What we need is a government that works smarter, getting the, the right. Getting te- the, the hospital in Texas, a privately run institution, said they had it all under control. The That's, CDC's mistake. Wait a minute. Was, wait a minute. Wait, wait let's talk about that. Not sending their own rapid response team in to try and take Hold over. Hold on. Immediately would it happened. You happen. you, have, you
1: have. You have a hospital that I mean, granted, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here when we start getting into accreditation through Jaco, through those types of organizations. but you have a private hospital that has been operating with a decontamination site and has been is a level one trauma center. And oh by the way, he can handle bio as incidents. Claims he could. They, it, they they themselves admitted they didn't have the equipment for at least a week. Ebola wait, a minute, Ebola is a whole new virus. This is a whole new ballgame that we have not seen. Yeah. You cannot, as much as you would like to hear the government say that we are preparing for all hazards, you cannot prepare for all hazards. We can't make some of this stuff up.
4: They didn't have the biohazard suits available in the hospital. This is true. This is how the two nurses got got infected. In addition, as far as I know, there's still the issue of how to deal with the the medical waste that is, is at hand, because when it was trying to be shipped to Louisiana, their traditional waste disposal spot, they refused. So, I mean, this is this has been an ongoing issue, and this is this is the nature of what is our government with a federal system with multiple levels of government. Carl Tuvan.
5: Ebola is not new. We had an Ebola outbreak in the 90s, uh, which was luckily contained. They've been talking about an Ebola back vaccine. Uh, and there was conversations about that. there are now many people working on it and trying to to bring it to uh to the marketplace. but you know again, <clears throat> there was uh claims by some at c d c that they didn't have enough money to to put out to to do this stuff even and I know it's a combination between the government and different drug companies to to, to pull these things off. Alan Moore? But it's not not a new situation.
2: Alan Alan Moore? I think the first outbreak of Ebola was in 1976. (laughs) It was a different part of Africa. There, There are occasionally little outbreaks, and they've always been confined to rural areas. We stopped them. So it simply didn't elevate to the kind of priority. There are things like that that are out there that when they don't pose a huge risk to America, at least at the time, and in our, in our vision, then they, they are back burner kinds of issues. In terms of developing a vaccine, it's not CDC that does that. That's where NIH spending okay, comes NIH. in, and okay. it's, it's the Division of NIH, the National Institute okay. of, of Allergies and Infectious Disease, that does all the HIV uh, stuff, all the SARS stuff, all the avian flu stuff. It has a huge portfolio. It's got billions of dollars. The head of the NIH, I think, should be charged with medical malpractice for a week or so saying, gee, if we had more money, we might have a vaccine by now. If they had had more
4: money... They would not have been spending it on an Ebola vaccine. No, but that's an example of a political amateur trying to play ball with the big boy. That's what that was. I agree. But But wait, he still has a responsibility. He still has a responsibility, but he was trying to make a a, a political point for his his agency. That's what was trying to do. Hold on,
1: hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's let Alan answer. In a
2: very misleading way, that's all I'm saying. But it's NIH that does that spending in the private sector. And I can tell you, there is no private corporation that's going to invest Did, hundreds of millions of dollars on an Ebola
4: vaccine a year ago. i Denise, want to hear Rebecca's me. response to oh, a private sector on. coming up with an Ebola vaccine. Hold
1: on, hold on. Denise, correct. Denise, Kraft.
3: First of all, I think the private sector is going to have to, because um, the, we may no. not have an active Ebola case here in the United States, we may not have any passengers today, but this is going to be very similar to what happens uh, with the Spanish influenza, where you're going to see multiple rounds. And that's what had so many problems, you know, 100 years ago, with people going back and forth and back and forth, and nothing's about to happen. I mean, it may die down right now, but we're going to see more waves, and that's what's going to drive the private sector to develop. But
1: apparently, as of of today, the government announced that if you are flying from West Africa, you are going through one of five airports to enter this country, and, oh, by the way, you're going to be monitored.
3: That's That's purely on the aviation side. That's not on the maritime side, and as you and I both know... Where does everything come into? like the seaports, and it's going to be the question of how do we make sure that those sailors who are coming from Africa, and by the way, for those of you who like your chocolate, all comes from Africa. That's what everybody's looking out for. We have to make sure that it doesn't come in via the
1: seaports. Right,
4: right. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, chocolate lovers against Obama. That's what I'm waiting to say. Uh, <laughs> oh, Jesus. Carl, last last thought. One, two things. Uh,
5: number one. It's the Coast Guard that has been tapped, from what I understand, uh, that is doing the, a lot of the uh, situations at the airport. Correct. So, Correct. They, Coast
1: Guard, Coast Guard health safety technicians. Right,
5: that's number one, number two, uh, they put a they put a date of November eighth or 9th, I think it was the eighth, where all the people who are being watched for Ebola, et cetera, will be clear, and hopefully that will happen.
1: Yeah. Well in this country. Well, well, again this is something that we will continue to monitor. I'm sure this is not the last time we're gonna talk about this, but when we come back, we're gonna get something just when I thought Ebola couldn't get political enough. We're going to talk about the politics of getting the vote out and the state ballots around the country that could affect midterm elections. This is back this is backroom politics live from Shelley's back room, thirteen thirty one F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington DC. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to backroom politics and know about Shelly's Back Room, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the Campfire Wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The premier sponsor of backroom Politics. From from back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change gears and talk about some of the state initiatives that are going to either get voters out or, in some instances, keep them home in this year's midterms. There are several initiatives in several states that have gotten a lot of national attention, and we're just going to talk a few of them. But these include gas taxes, pot taxes. Taxes on millionaires, just some of the issues that voters are going to consider in the voting booth this midterm election. First, let's look at uh,
4: Justin, I want to ask you for calling me, sir. Really, <laughs> really, that's what you're going with. Yeah, way to go,
1: Shecky. Nice job. Uh, let Let's, let's, look at, uh, let's look at Massachusetts. You've got Massachusetts right now is sending the, the uh, residents of the Commonwealth to the polls to decide whether they need to scrap an annual automatic gas tax increase that was enacted in 2013. Now, the, ca- the tax is currently $0.26.5 cents per gallon, but it could go down to $0.21 cents a gallon, which is still pretty high by tax standards in any state. That's why they call it Massachusetts. But this is enough to get a lot of people into the voting booth in Massachusetts. Big question is: is this is this something that the state of Massachusetts is just taking too much initiative on, or is this something? Hey, in order to survive, we got to pay to play. Denise Krupp. Well, Peter, remember,
3: no, there's a bit of a. a, a
1: an election um, under concern for
3: the Democratic government. Isn't this Coakley? Isn't she ready? Yeah, Coakley's on the ballot again. Yeah, so it'll be very interesting to see how this gets people out in support of her, because I hate to ask the question, but wouldn't people come out to vote for her? And I'm, I'm saying that because I thought she was having some problems that maybe she's Still yeah. struggling to find some supporters. Is that a nice way of putting that? Mm-hmm. Coakley's
4: yeah. had some issues, not and most recently her the issue uh, on trying to, to skip out on a debate, which he's now been pressured back into. But
1: it, it, it seems to me though that this is all of a sudden. If you talk to the folks in Massachusetts, this is the new Tea Party cry: taxation without representation. But advocates for keeping the twenty-six and a half, per, the twenty-six and a half cent per gallon tax are saying, "Look, you repeal this." And you bring it down to 21 cents, you're putting commuters, you're putting anybody that travels on our highways inside the Commonwealth in danger. Sounds like scare taxes to me,
4: Dan Lipner. If you want government, you have to pay for it. The only person that, I mean, at a certain point, you have to find money for things, including roads. And I mean, this is the same issue with the federal gas tax. Suddenly paying for highways is challenging because people are driving less. So it, it, this is this is not an unheard of problem for states all across the country. Becca Kaufman,
6: it's just a typical Democratic scare tactic of they want to take away your X. Anytime we want we push for lower taxes, the, the Democratic response is, well, that's because they want to take away. fill in the blend. If You want to use Rose in this scenario? That's fine. I don't think anyone wants to take away the infrastructure of Massachusetts here. But that's
4: how it's, would you suggest paying for it, Rebecca? Paying for what roads?
6: I'm not, I don't have the local knowledge to speak to Massachusetts um,
2: budget, but I'm sure they do. And I don't, Alan more. yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know the details of Massachusetts, but typically state gas taxes go directly into road funds, popled funds, road expansion, road modernization, and sometimes there, there's a debate with how much rapid transit should get a piece of the action. If just thinking about the numbers you're talking about, if you go from 26 to 21 cents, you're taking about 20% of the previous revenue you used to get if there's no change in demand. And the price of gas has of course been falling. So so the, the people are actually probably driving a little bit more not less. So you take 20% of one revenue stream away. And if that revenue stream is dedicated to highways and roads, then you have to figure out, what do we do about that? Do we just go without and do less? Are we going to be more efficient? Um, this was, a, as you, I think you said, a, a referendum just a couple of years ago to raise it to 26. So now there's, there's maybe at least a political effort of buyer's remorse. It's very hard to pass tax increases, but sometimes you can get them for things like roads and schools that touch people's lives directly, um, whether this is a big driver in Massachusetts? Is that funny? funny? I don't know,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's well. crap. I, I'm not sure if it's, it, it is a big driver, but there's something else that, that's pulling into this, um, and it's the export of LNG right now. There's been several different articles written by uh, refiners
4: uh, and uh, refiner owners
3: saying that if we make certain changes to transportation costs, it will be less expensive for drivers up in Massachusetts. And the uh, GAO came out with a study talking about that yesterday because they were asked to look at the export. Um, it is a side issue, it's an inside baseball issue, but I can guarantee. That it is something that folks in Massachusetts are going to be talking about, just like folks in Alaska and Hawaii. Are.
1: I can I can tell you right now, the people in Massachusetts aren't talking about LNG. I talked to people up there; they're more worried about paying close to five dollars a gallon. They'd rather pay three dollars or two eighty yes, a gallon. LNG
3: comes in uh, to Boston and then it's used for heating. But
1: so that that,
3: that that's where some of this is
1: going to come. But from. Bob Hines, when we when we look at this, you know. Let's be honest, you've got the Federal Highway Administration saying about 53% of our nation's bridges and road infrastructure are in miserable condition. Some's got to pay for that, and traditionally it's been gas taxes have been a good source of funding for that. If you want bridges that aren't going to fall down when you're driving over the Mystic Tobin, it makes sense that, hey, you've got to pay to play. You've got to pay to drive. I don't know
0: what the situation is with respect to Massachusetts' highway system. Uh, I suspect it's like many other states; uh, it's probably uh, deteriorating, particularly in some of the rural areas. Uh, you know, it, it, it's always hard to just, you know, to say let's let's have a, let's have a higher tax, but to uh, reduce it by that significant amount. I suspect that within a year, Massachusetts is going to, somebody up there is going to be complaining about how bad the roads are and where are we fixing
4: them? Or worse yet, after some bridge collapses and people go,
1: why
5: didn't the government
1: fix (laughs) this? Go ahead, Carl Tubin.
5: Well, there was an aged, uh, older man with white hair who who, uh, put through Congress a uh, whole structure that modernized some of Massachusetts roads and built uh including building a bridge uh I'm not saying that that this shouldn't be done that taxes shouldn't be lowered but you really we we really have a problem in this country as all of us know on infrastructure and we have we have bridges that are falling apart uh, we have roads that are falling apart and uh and it's amazing that somebody would come in and try to 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 reverse this and try to take money away from from what is going to be a, a horrible safety problem in the very very near future, if not already. But
1: Denise Krepp, when you look at this raise, when you look at the question of raising or lowering taxes to this dramatic of an extreme, this puts people like Martha Coakley in a really awkward position. You're going to get the anti-tax people who might not necessarily go in favor of Coakley in this type of election, does this put her chances of election in jeopardy?
3: I wouldn't say it's putting her in jeopardy, but boy, if she wins and and this proposal comes through and you have the first budget in a year, I don't envy the position she's going to be in because it has to come out of the state's budget. And the question is going to be, if we go down by five cents, what are you cutting in that budget to make sure you still have the money you need to, to rebuild your infrastructure?
4: Dan Leibner. Well, in California, which I used to think being the governor of California was the worst job you could have in the country because 70% of the California budget was dictated by direct voter referendum. So as governor of California, you, you are responsible for a very small portion of the budget, yet you take the blame for every problem dictated mm-hmm. from it. That said this might be the learning curve that the Massachusetts electorate is about to go through, that once you have the responsibility to go directly to the electorate, there are consequences that come for it. California's turned a corner now with uh, mm-hmm. go- Jerry Brown governor Brown has has actually is presiding over seemingly a a boom time for for California and more importantly the Cal- California politics. so this might just be the learning curve that Massachusetts needs to go through.
2: It, it, yeah, Alan Moore. Yeah, we should probably, I think we've all basically acknowledged, none of us know the facts on the ground in Massachusetts. <laughs> and those things matter. And if they're going to cut revenue from a major stream of, of, uh, of, of major revenue source by 20%, and if that money is dedicated to the highways, there are going to be studies and reports. And a lot of information out there for the voters as to whether, uh, where, how, you, how you make up for that. So, Alan, are you suggesting the voters
4: read studies and reports? No, but
2: I'm <laughs> suggesting that newspapers, for example, and TV shows do little summaries. You know, here's a study that says we won't be able to repair these 20 bridges that are, in di- that are on, a, on a list of about to fall apart. We're not going to be able to fill these potholes, and you're going to have some credible source. that that looked at that issue. I mean, that's going to be, this is going to be a, if not facts-driven, at least facts-impacted referendum. And people may say, I don't like paying taxes any more than anybody else, but I'll be damned if I want more traffic out here on the freeway near my house or those darn potholes that were about to get fixed might not. And so it's, it's, it's not just pure I hate taxes, therefore vote against all taxes. Uh, in, in, particularly in the case of a transportation tax, people make their own more individually focused right. decisions.
1: Well, let, let's take a look at a really strange one going on in Illinois that's going to get folks out there. It's a tax on millionaires to pay for education. According to the tax for education question being posed to Illinois, uh, Illinois voters, it asked citizens if they want to amend the Constitution to add another 3% tax on individuals earning more than $1 million to fund education. That, to me, is a tax for success, according to some GOP
4: pundits. Dan Littner. I encourage the GOP to talk about the the underrepresented millionaires if they don't have a strong enough voice. Just talk about how they are being oppressed in this country because they were only able to become millionaires. I want them to talk about that as much as humanly possible.
1: Bob Hines, it, it <laughs> seems like... Three <laughs> percent, an additional three percent tax on millionaires. The
4: oppressed millionaires.
1: The, uh, I'm sorry. According to Dan Lipner, the oppressed millionaires, uh, the, even some of those that have even moderate upper middle moderate upper middle class incomes still feel that they're being unfairly taxed. For money that they made through hard work, through innovation, yeah. through ingenuity. I don't think anybody in the upper middle
0: class is probably making more than a million dollars a year. Am I, am I wrong? What's the upper middle class? It's,
2: it's, it's I mean, lower than that. 500,000? It's I,
0: lower I, than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so do I. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I think if you're only
4: going to catch people who make a million dollars, no salary. I want to see the millionaires marching in the streets demanding. <laughs>
1: Alan, Alan, Moore. I don't, I don't think About it's the only argument be, that possibly that works.
2: If it, if it really is a tax on millionaires, is millionaires today? Who's next? Tomorrow, watch out, folks. About, watch out. How, how it how, never stops but, up here. This may sound tempting, and, and only X number of people are affected. But I mean, you're
1: talking about a constitutional amendment. Who's to say they don't amend it to drop it down to 500,000? What I'm year. talking about
2: is what is is the political argument? Because Dan's mm-hmm. absolutely right. Nobody's going to feel sorry for millionaires. Nobody understands. You know, it, it's it's you're, you're just not that you're you're not going to say, hey, it. leave us alone. We're the we're the we're the job creators. Uh, there's almost nothing that flies that's credible when you're just talking about millionaires. So you, the only argument you can use is, because people have no idea who pays what kind of income tax. They really don't. Bob Hines?
7: Yeah. Think about this.
0: Think about if all the millionia- millionaires who are who are giving grants to schools, colleges, universities, who are doing all kinds of eleemosynary things all through the state. What if they all decided to get a big together and have a campaign saying, okay, we'll pay 3% and we cut off everything else we get?
4: Yes. What if tax dollars mm-hmm. paid for the school yeah. and whatnot instead? Carl I, be a Tragedy. Wouldn't
5: that be a mess? No,
4: but the,
0: <laughs> point, it, what, oh. the point is just think what kind of a problem that would be.
4: Carl Tubin.
5: I wonder how many millionaires are going to take their time in, in Illinois. I mean, they're so busy making all their money. Are they going to come out and vote? They're going mean, to well, There
2: were only a handful of them anyway. So. Yeah, true. If they it's all true. voted 10 times, There were a five. lot
4: more of them under the, under the Obama years than there were before, let's be yeah, clear. But if,
1: even if they, voted, even yes, if they all, all voted twice, even if they all voted twice, it would be fine. But here's the funny thing about <laughs> Illinois is, the, the Republicans in Illinois, and even some Republicans at the national level, are saying that this is part this is a top tier issue, but it's part of the Democrats in Illinois in Springfield trying to flood the ballot box with initiatives that tend to go towards liberal voters to get the vote out for liberal voters. Becca Becca Kaufman.
6: Right. The issue here is that education needs reform nationally and in Illinois and both both gubernatorial candidates agree on that. The question is, how do they want to fix it? We have a Democrat who wants, who is proposing a 3% tax on millionaires. If, I, if that's not a, a liberal DOT tactic, I don't, I don't know what it is. No one likes to hear it. I mean, there is no good argument to defend millionaires in this situation. But let's look at what Rounder is proposing. He's proposing school choice and a voucher system and innovation within the education system, which is a real solution to the education. System. Carl Tubman.
5: Well, I'm surprised that you that you say that because in elections past there have been ballots on the uh, there have been measures on the ballots about uh, abortion and all kinds of things that pulled out the other side. So you know. Both sides do the same thing, unfortunately.
1: Well let's let's take a look at let's take a look at Florida because the same arguments being made down in Florida, not that Governor Rick Scott hasn't already shot himself on the foot on Fangate, but there is a referendum to make medicinal marijuana and a certain decriminalization of certain amounts of marijuana legal in the state of Florida. This seems to be a get-out-the-vote tactic because, according to some GOP uh, pundits, that only Democrats smoke pot, and it's going to get people out to vote for Charlie Crist, Denise Kraft. right,
3: Krupp. let's take this one out. First of all, if you look i I'm at, not saying that. I mean, I, I mean, I'll come out and say I think you should be doing this because if you look at the population that smokes pot and the population that is doing coke, it's radically different. And those
1: laws shouldn't be. Jailed. So what are you saying? That only millionaires do coke? They don't smell like pot? And that we should maybe have medicinal coke? But, That's where you defend you know, the millionaires.
4: You, you legalize what, cocaine. What, I, what
1: I'm
3: saying <laughs> is that there are a lot of African American men between the ages of 18 and, and 26 that are in jail because they were involved with pot and they were involved with other drugs. That same population of white men who were doing coke is not in jail. It's the African-American population. So should we be looking at who we have put into jail for reasons that are not so clean? Absolutely.
1: Becca Kaufman.
6: I I agree with the point. You're trying to make the essence of it. But marijuana and cocaine are two very different drugs. And marijuana has... proven medicinal benefits that need to be looked at from a legislative standpoint. Cocaine is just horrible for the human body, and there will never be an argument to be made that we should be legalizing cocaine for medical reasons. You
1: obviously have never been on tour with a rock band.
7: Uh... I'm not
3: going to be on tour with a rock band, but let's let's raise this question. Bill Biden, the vice president's son, got into the Navy— in ways I still don't understand because it used to be 36, if you're going in, <laughs> a you're waiver for 40 pops <laughs> positive for Coke. What type of message does that send? It says that the vice president's son can do this and there are no ramifications. He got thrown out. He got right? thrown out of the Navy. Yeah, but out. do you get arrested for consuming it when you have an 18 year old man who's African American who gets caught with pox? Well,
1: that probably got I think there's
3: a
6: problem with that. I I totally agree with you. I think that you're posing criminal justice reform questions and and looking at our incarceration rates for African Americans and the way that African Americans are are criminalized and profiled and that's absolutely a problem. But if you're if you're drawing a, an analogy between cocaine and marijuana in terms of legalization,
1: I don't think that's... Well, easy. you're talking about. I mean, let, let's let's be honest here. Going back to the original question in Florida is, they're talking about taxing this as a commodity, which theoretically for Democrats look at this as a huge revenue stream for the state of Florida, which doesn't have an income tax, which does not have a high property value tax. But at the same time, Republicans saying, oh, it's just another way that Democrats are going to tax the heck out of something that shouldn't be taxed. It shouldn't even be legal. Carl Tubman. Uh-
4: Oh, no. <laughs> Dan Lipner. I mean, this has been true for states across the country and this is why casino gambling is now legal in multiple states. Many places that at saw gambling as a sin on many different fronts of which I'm actually against the legalization of gambling. That said, you have states looking for revenue wherever they can find it. Since the 80s, Straight up taxation has been a bad word. So you need to find other ways of generating revenue. And that's been with the the sin taxes on alcohol and tobacco, because smoking has declined. That's actually been a declining revenue stream. So states are constantly looking for a new way of funding. And in Florida's case, the state government in Florida doesn't do very much. It runs universities and a handful of other things. So for the state of Florida to actually be looking for this, that money is going to be going to... A very narrow set of priorities that the state actually does, and if legalizing marijuana is going to do it, and taxing it, thus far what we've seen from other states, in well the most the most noteworthy is Colorado. It seems to be a decent experiment with only some nominal issues that have come come from that. And as far as it driving out the vote, I, I predict that that's not going to do a whole lot because dude, man, there's, like, an election on Tuesday or something? Like, this so you is not going to be saying? a thing. Wait a minute,
1: wait a minute. If, 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 you, if you're a consumer of marijuana, legally or illegally, what you're saying is you won't go out and vote if, to get it more legal if, because you've got the munchies and you're too busy watching Jerry if, Springer. If you're
4: the person that is motivated to vote because of marijuana, odds are I'm thinking you might not be registered in the first place. Becca Kaufman?
6: I think you're unfairly stereotyping um, people who use marijuana and who want to see it legalized in the state of Florida. And I do think it's something that would motivate them to get out and vote. It it happened in Colorado, and and I expect it would happen in Florida. True True story. True story.
2: Alan Moore. In marijuana, there are a lot of seniors (laughs) who who are interested in... (laughs) observing the law, <laughs> and smoking weed. So they they won't be high on Election Day. They're hoping that because of Election Day, they, they, can they, be, they can get high on Friday. So what
1: you're saying is the people who live on the 18th floor of Boca Del Vista in Pompano Beach are going to go vote because they want to go back to doing grass. There are absolutely
2: <laughs> older folks who smoked when they were young, stopped during their professional careers because it was illegal and risky and then they didn't even know where to get it, who would like to take a hit sometime
4: soon. I got Alan. I'm hearing <laughs> lament in your voice. These are, people, these are people. Watch all the people who are planning trips to Colorado.
7: I
2: can and just pay just attention. People, I can Let's take a golf Congress, trip. How um, about Colorado? They got golf courses. What? Carl Tubin.
5: Let me tell you, I've got relatives uh, that were just in town for my son's wedding. And and they say and it's true that Colorado is booming because of, uh, of the marijuana. People are coming from all over to come to Colorado to get a little bit of marijuana, and and uh, and it's. They're happy. There, there's well, no, there's no question. Of of, they're
2: happy. A lot of, a
0: lot of other
5: states
2: are getting ripping right, Alan Moore. Yeah, and, and revenue is a really important part. As Dan was saying, <laughs> he was talking about casino gambling. Remember, this started with lotteries. That that there.
1: The, oh, the, the mob was going to come in and take first, over. The first move was to to do lotteries
2: and lotteries with proceeds focused on education because people are crossing our boundaries. Going to the neighboring states and buying lottery tickets. Why don't they buy them at home? And then the 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 Native American tribes were opening casinos because they have some, some some interesting constitutional interpretations about the, their ability to do that. And then the state said, "Wow, uh, the rest of the state and and neighboring states said we want in on that." And I think that there, that. People are watching the the experiment in Colorado with great interest. Washington's coming on board. There have been states with medical marijuana where it's pretty easy to get a prescription, apparently. Um, and and again, it's another free revenue source. The place where it's controversial right now in Colorado, interestingly, is not so much smoking it, but ingesting it in other products. Right. And there's some talk, although it's, it hasn't, it hasn't, it it it, it hasn't. It hasn't
1: blossomed fully yet. Formed yet it hasn't
2: come kids, into a bud. You can know that <laughs> it will when some kids get into some souped up brownies. And 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 <laughs> ingest them and and get sick and harm themselves
4: that, or others. That's already been the case. Yeah, I mean, it, it's
2: uh, beginning uh, to happen. It's happening to adults who say, I love these brownies, I don't feel anything and by the time they've eaten four brownies and have had they're whacked out of their more mind. than they would have won, there's gonna be some true horror stories and there's no real regulation on uh, uh, on so, but that's what's you, so, so that's coming
1: next. So so yeah, that's coming down things. the line. We're but bottom line that. here, bottom line here is we we've got we've got several st- several states that are seeing some some key initiatives. The, the the bottom line of this question is: is this enough to get voters out to the polls, and could this sway the way midterms evolve as we see in two weeks? Bob Hines. Well, I
0: suppose it would depend upon the, the which state you're talking about. Obviously, most states are not, don't have these kind of things on their books. I would assume that
1: the uh, the states we're talking about have some key election races going. And I would suggest that
0: the reality is in a midterm election, the, the, ab, the, the voting population is different than it is in the presidential year. It's, it's generally, it's generally number one. It's certainly smaller, and number two, it's generally more conservative. Right, and older, yeah, much
4: like, like older. older.
2: And no, you've got no, those right. factors. Right. Well, th- some of those people are going to vote for these, the, the sure. these
1: propositions. Was my point. Right. Yeah, and I think they will. <laughs> the correct answer is this is going to get the vote out in favor of Charlie Crist, Charlie Crystal and in Florida, this is going to affect the Democratic vote. In uh, in the governor's race in Illinois, I think it's going to get more Republicans out. I think that's going to be a tighter race than should be considered.
4: And quite frankly, Colorado's already stoned, so oh, they don't care. Can <laughs> we just point out exactly how fast the marijuana issue has moved? Back in 1992, the pot-smoking, skirt-chasing, draft-dodging Democratic candidate. Is there any to, other
1: stereotype you could
4: put on marijuana smokers? No, no, but what I'm, what I'm saying is that we in fact we've moved... No so forgot
1: Doritos eating. I don't.
4: <laughs> Clint ate everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> By the way, the views of Dan Littner do not necessarily affect the views of those yeah, around yeah. the table or that of backroom politics. Uh, anyway, the correct, answer, the correct answer is yes, this will affect some races in some key states. Hey, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling giving Texas voter ID laws a chance down in the Lone Star State, we're going to talk about that. And why is this a big deal? When we come back for our second hour of Backroom Politics Live from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C., we will be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during Happy Hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air, Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or... Whether there's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection, that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches, they've got Isla Sky scotches, blended single malts, anything you want. Port Wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Hi. And we're back here live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the beginning of a second hour of Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of, live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, 10 days ago, voting rights advocates had a reason to celebrate developments down in Texas when a U.S. District Court judge, Nelva Gonzalez-Ramos, had eviscerated the low-star state's voter ID law issuing a powerful ruling considering the restrictions imposed by Texas Republicans without cause. However, the Supreme Court upheld the Texas voter ID law in a ruling last week, which, in fact, has caused all kinds of debate on whether, A, this is legal, is it oppressing voters, or is this, in fact, a sign that the Supreme Court is all over the place, and doesn't have a real good grasp on what they should do about voter ID laws nationwide. Dan Lipner, you brought up Wisconsin off the air. You've got the Texas ruling now that basically confirms the legality of the Texas voter ID law. At the same time, the Supreme Court really hasn't gotten its arms wrapped
4: around the Wisconsin effort in the same vein. Actually, you're misstating the majority opinion on the Texas case. Okay. So what's what, what, the unsigned majority opinion? There, there is a signed dissent authored by uh, Justice Ginsburg and, and uh, that also eviscerates the law. But the majority basically said, because we are so close to the election, there is no time to hear this. And actually go through the process of determining whether or not this law does in fact disenfranchise voters and whether or not it's constitutional. But doesn't it? But but doesn't? And and that's in conflict with the Wisconsin ruling, which because it happened two weeks ago, that actually said that the disenfranchisement of voters was going to be as large as it was. That the Supreme Court upheld the striking. But Dan,
1: not an attorney, but doesn't the Supreme Court's ruling on the Texas issue pretty much grant ab initio the the affirmation of the Texas voter ID law.
4: No, it's still yeah. to be heard. The, 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 yeah. the, the majority statement said that this is still to be heard yeah. at both the district appellate and potentially Supreme All Court the the
1: Yet, yeah, Bob, merits. But Bob Hines, you've got Republicans and supporters of the Texas voter ID law that are literally going to every media outlet that will hear them claiming victory for Texas voter ID law. Well, of course they are, because they're politicians, make sense, Alan Moore. Well, it's a victory for the for now. Yeah,
2: it's what they wanted for now. But yeah. as Dan points out, they're going to have to hear this case. Yeah. Um, this is—it's not uncommon that that they will sometimes have to give sort of a summary opinion. It's unsigned. It wasn't fully debated before the court, but it's time sensitive. So they they jump in. They hold things up. They let things go forward, um, and they acknowledge that they haven't that, yeah. they, that because yeah. of the timing. Oh, lack of oh, timing, they have to take a, they have to take an immediate position. Oh, hold on, Hold on, Bob,
1: and, and, hold on, Bob Hines. And there's, there's
0: no way, there's no way that Texas could deal with anything but the law as it is right now. Ten days before, ten days before the election, you couldn't do it. it you know, it's, it's just a, it's something that has to be dealt with on the merits. And I suspect that the court may very well overturn yeah, it the well,
4: merits. Also, but also, to Alan's point, uh, the opinion wasn't issued until something like. Uh, five o'clock in the morning, because Justice Ginsburg was up all night writing her opinion to the Senate uh, in order to make sure this got out. Because again, there there are other legal processes needed to go into play. when the Supreme Court issues a ruling, it does not happen directly. It then needs to go back through the channels of the court system, go back downstream. But 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 we now have a unique situation that we have a live judicial issue that is actually going to be litigated on the merits. With the facts after the election, be- so we're actually going to see whether or not people yeah. are disenfranchised. Is awesome. It is being predicted that as many as 600,000 Texas voters are going to are going to be disenfranchised because of this rule. Carl Tooman. Uh, yeah, the,
5: the other thing is, when you look at Wisconsin, where this this rule this uh, rule was thrown out, uh, even the the candidate for governor of Wisconsin says things are so mixed up because first. You had to have identification. Now you don't have to have identification, and people are thinking, "Well, I don't want to go because I have to have identification." There's hardly any time to really educate the voters, all the voters in Wisconsin, as to what the law is. But we
1: get to a very messed up situation. But Alan Moore, we, we've seen this happen with Pennsylvania, we've seen it happen with Wisconsin, and now Texas. This becomes a larger issue of voter ID laws. Are they constitutional or unconstitutional? There are arguments on both sides, and both sides are very adamant about the fact. The reality is is there enough evidence right now that shows that Texas, the Texas law or any of the voter ID laws are valid? Do you need ID to go to the polls? So, first of all, the,
2: the big secret here most states have voter ID laws. The question is, can you change those laws? How how tough and demanding can they be? What precisely can you require? How much warning do you need to give to people uh, to if you're if you're going to modify the, the law? Um, and most Americans think there ought to be something there for voter ID over seventy percent, and then. Katie bar the door on what the details are, and it's very clear that there are efforts to to create new rules in the name of integrity of the process that are aimed at at, at reducing the turnout of certain people who are ex- either either uh, keeping people from voting who are expected to vote in a particular way, or making sure they can vote because they're expected to vote in a particular way. There's
4: shocking. Politics involved in all of this. Well, and that's what's special about Texas. It's it's important to note that what Texas does is, if you have a your gun license, that is an acceptable idea. If you have your your if you have your student ID from a state college, that is not an acceptable student acceptable. Hold on, Denise, crap. That's why I wouldn't be pouring the
3: champagne right now. I mean, the court came out and said we can't stop it, but as Bob said, we're going to have to hear it on the merits the merits are going to be determined in two weeks. And there would right. be a lot of lawyers looking around going, okay, who has been disenfranchised? How many have been disenfranchised? Because then you could contest that election. Well, but so but I, well, I Denise,
1: let me, ask this, let me ask this question, though, Denise. You know, when you when you talk about, you know, voters being disenfranchised, theoretically it's almost impossible to prove because if you're disenfranchised, you're just not going to go out and vote yes, because – you don't have
3: yes, you a are. proper
1: ID. And, and,
3: and that's what this is going to come down to. Is you're, you're going to have a lot of people coming in and testing the your system. You're going to have people, when you're talking about with your student IDs, I don't have a driver's license, but I have a student ID. Thank you very much. You can't vote. There's a lawyer standing right. Excuse you come here for a second. Let me take your name. Let me figure out what's what happened. That's what's about to happen. Alan Moore.
2: Yeah, I'm laughing. At most students aren't 21. Now, maybe the voting age is 18, yeah, um, and, and most of the some of the kids will have driver's license, but they'll be fake driver's licenses, <laughs> which they don't necessarily want to produce. I'm not sure those young people are all going to be going out, and and the only ID they'll have is a student ID. Most students of all things will have. A driver's license from no, some place. No, no. Hold on,
1: hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let Alan right. finish. Let Alan finish. Or, or they
2: will, ha- or they will have another piece of identification from a from a, from a, a different place. No, Dan, not no, Dan. Dan
4: no. Lipner. This is a generational thing. And much to my surprise, uh, from the millennials uh, era, there are less of them that are actually driving now than when than when we were kids. Uh, so they're that, certainly, that, certainly delaying. No question certainly delaying. And once you're in a college campus, that in most cases Mm -hmm. don't necessarily require you to have a car. There's all sorts of other things you can have on a college campus. Yes, you might want an ID to drink, but as you suggested, 21 is still the drinking age in most places. So that might not be your legitimate identification. So there are are a bunch of other things at play. So, and it has been said, several uh, GOP officials have been caught on tape in the last five, 10 years Saying explicitly that these rules are to stop young people who haven't quite learned enough to know that they need to be voting Republican. So we're going to try and put I, off their voting.
1: I want to go. I want to go, go to our in-house millennial here, Rebecca Kaufman. I mean, Rebecca, you work for a youth advocacy group. Are you hearing anything that would even support the idea that because I'm under the age of 21, because I'm a millennial, because I'm not driving right now, I feel disenfranchised as a voter?
6: Well, I'm not representing my organization right now. Right, I'm right,
1: myself. right.
6: Um, I think that politicians consistently talk down to my generation. We just heard some rhetoric in which I mean, you implied that we would show up with fake
1: IDs to, to the polls. Um, I hope you I understood. Mean, talking, I was joking. That was about that. that was sarcastic. I mean, yeah.
6: I, I mean, these comments are made in jest, but they are reflective of, of this. Over. I mean, like I said last week, the White House tried to do an economic pitch to us last week using emojis and smiley faces like this is just a generation of legislators who don't really understand how to talk to my generation um, and I think they're trying to figure it out I personally don't really understand the controversy around voter ID laws I agree that some of the timing with the pushes for these are suspicious Um, you pointed this out again and I agree that um, there is there is something to look at in terms of why why we're pushing for these right now however the concept behind having to prove your citizenship when you vote in the united
1: states isn't isn't a confusing one so, so so, so hold, hold on, on, hold, on be hold on hold on rebecca i want to go off of what something you were saying when the, the gop and the right when you talk about voter id laws tend to go with voter fraud voter fraud voter fraud yet throughout the decades that voter id has been an issue we're seeing a situation right now where, quite frankly, the numbers just aren't there that show voter fraud in a lot of elections, including some of your biggest presidential turnouts.
6: I think that there is mixed evidence on that, but let's say that hypothetically you're correct and it's a sensationalized issue. That really doesn't detract from the principles of the matter. So it's kind
4: of a, a, a non-secular, in my opinion. No, but but to, 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 find, to find principle on a non uh, on an issue that uh, I, I I'll agree with you that there are two sides of the issue that it's either non-existent or negligible at best. I mean, Colin Powell said at best that how can something be widespread and undetectable simultaneously? It's not true. Well, so finding principle on something because it happens to help your side politically is is. Challenging to say the least. Carl Tooman. You
5: know, there's one reason for all this. They do not want African Americans to vote. They don't want Latinos to vote. They don't want women to vote. Who's and that? All- Who's that?
1: The GOP. And I, hold on, hold on. I want to take this. I want to take this. I want to take this. I'm going to have to break your arm. No, 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 Carl. no, 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 Carl. I want to take that. I know. I want to take this, Carl. of the New Hampshire Republican House? Party
4: got caught saying that very right. thing six years ago.
2: So that's certainly what all Republicans want. want no, wait, It does
1: not represent most is, of the people. Wait a, a minute. minute. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let it's Carl. Rampants throughout
5: the country. Car- Carl. Voter ID laws is the rampants throughout the country. And it's it's been to suppress the votes of certain people.
1: Carl, I, I I think I I think a that statement is absolutely without merit. I think that that is insulting to the Republicans, especially moderate Republicans, especially our African American Republicans, our Latino Republicans. Because I'll tell you right now, not to the, to our, our female Republicans, our female Republicans <laughs> not to I mean, I will tell you right now, In the Irish Republicans, the GOP. Would kill to have the african Americans and the Latino Republicans go out to vote no. if you think that voter ID is a GOP measure to get to get us not to allow african Americans and Latinos and females and the elderly to vote, I think that is why else take
4: a big government measure to, to to deal with a problem that is almost non-existent Bob Hines and why, and Hold
5: why, on. why in Texas it, Has the GOP and Bob Hines. Taking this to court Over and over again Bob Hines You know
0: what this yelling discussion But it's a good one It is a good discussion Because <laughs> it, it, is a, it is a hot item But you know what we really need to do here In this country Now I don't think we should take away From the states their, you know, decision making. I think, however, it would be very good if there were a group of senior political and judicial people, half dozen, a dozen of people, just, you know, commission that sets up and says what every state should have as a minimum requirement for
1: voting. You mean like a federal uh, elections commission? No, That's I, not do the not. Does.
0: I do not. Yeah, like I the do F- not. I do not think that, sure. but I think we need some basic line. You know, how do you prove that you have a right to vote? There ha- we we can figure that one out. There may be three or four requirements. If you met those, you're you're in. And anything else a state wants to do could be looked at, but that's the bottom line. We have to have one basic core so we understand where the bottom line
1: is. You know, there have
3: been three times where the Constitution has been amended talking about voting, and just to clarify, to make sure that everybody understands, that means uh, that African Americans can vote. That's one of the first ones. That women could vote. That was one of the second ones. And the third one was polling tax, Because yep. for a long time, people had to go and they had to pay. Pay money. They had to pay money. So I think it is entirely reasonable to be very concerned when people asked for additional documentation. Um, votes have been manipulated in our country's history. People have tried to prevent people from voting because of their skin color, because of their gender. And I think that there are parts of this country that that is still happening. Do I think it's happening everywhere? No. but. You, right. you, there
1: are some you, you know what, Denise, you know what's funny is, because, you know, when you go back and you look through history where voter fraud ran rampant, a lot of those places were Democratic strongholds, Wait. i.e., Chicago, New York, Tammany Hall. Mm-hmm. You, you are, you're talking about a Democratic machine that gave us the phrase, vote and vote often. This... This idea that this is a GOP maneuver to suppress votes, I think, is inaccurate. Hold on, hold on, not. hold on. Let me finish. I think it's inaccurate, number one. And number two, the evidence just isn't there.
4: Well, the in parts, of, in parts of this country where this has been an issue, Wisconsin is actually a different beast. But it, when you're talking about the South,
3: North Carolina.
4: And, when you, and let's go back in history, a, a literacy test, Seems reasonable on its face, requesting that voters be aware of the issues at hand so they can actually read the ballot. Seemingly on its face, a reasonable assertion until the administration of that test mysteriously would, would allow families who's, who had history of voting, therefore their kids have a history of voting, but if you didn't have the history, you'd have to take this test. That test would be administered very subjectively by the local elections officials, and mysteriously, African Americans would almost never pass that test, which is, wh- which is why the Supreme Court came out with with the standard of disparate impact on those kind of laws. And the disparate impact matters. If that If the new law ends up disproportionately affecting a protected class, in which case you're talking about minorities in this case, then the court and the government should step in to ensure that that disparate impact does not actually occur. Carl Toobin.
5: I'm not saying that the Democratic Party has been literally white over the last oh, umpteen oh. years. Oh, you, couldn't. It, it, <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't be honest. Because it hasn't. There is, there was happening Hall, Chicago. Who knows? I, I have, I have, I have talked to people in Chicago, drawn blue in the face to find out why Daly only put out part of the vote and then put out the other part of the vote. And they they tell me that that Illinois had a a situation where people would see what was going on in Chicago and they would ruin enough ballots downstate so they would always win the elections. Uh, That's neither here nor there. The point is, in this period of time, it is, it seems to me that it's been the gop who was who was led to a lot of this voter suppression
1: yeah. but, but i but I, th- I, think, I think but again carl you you, do, you take away the idea of some sort of validation of your ability and your right to vote versus voter suppression which you inherently and instinctively give as a GOP measure to keep blacks and Latinos and females and the elderly out of the voting booth. I, 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 I
4: just I don't. I just don't see it. There's I, no I, real I, evidence of voter fraud though. Right. It, I All, I, I, all, all I, I, these measures exist for a reason. And if it's not to combat an actual problem, there must be an alternative. But let me and let the me most ask obvious what, is to select your own well,
1: voters to vote. Wait, let me ask Alan Moore, let me ask you. When you get to a situation where there are <laughs> largely undocumented, you have a population that does have a percentage of undocumented workers in your state, i.e. Texas, where undocumented workers have in the past gotten driver's licenses and have gone in and voted, although they're not legal to vote, and that has perhaps in some opinions swayed either way the validity of that vote. Doesn't it make sense at that point to say, hey, look, there's a legitimate concern here that only American citizens over the age of 18 are allowed to vote and by proving your american citizenship that's not outside the the norm of proving yourself qualified as i said earlier
2: some over 70% of the american people think that some kind of voter identification to require people to establish their age and their citizenship is is a legitimate request is there a history of voting fraud around the country, not that I'm aware of. There are there are occasions where it occurs. There's certainly potential for it, but potential and, and actual is different. But if I'm if I'm a group of Republicans and I realize that playing to that, that I can that that I can respond to the will of the majority by something that's hard to say it's unreasonable. How old are you? And are you a citizen prove it.
1: Which by the way is 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 favored three to one here in the United States. That's what I was saying.
2: that, (laughs) That 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 that's what the public supports and it turns out that the people who are least likely who are eligible to vote but least likely to prove it happen to be poorer people with less mobility, less awareness of how to how to establish their identity and who aren't likely to go to vote anyway, but you really want them to? Is there a disproportionate impact of those kinds of laws politically? Yeah. Is it is it is it on its face racist? No, it's classist. But and it has political ramifications. But it's sort of interesting because it supports what the 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 the, the clear majority of the country want, and it's not illegitimate on its face it just has this interesting impact on voting that's why we see this again and again and again denise crapp this
3: morning my husband and i took our daughters to go to the post office because we wanted to get them passports we thought we would be able to get in and out in five minutes no it became a traumatic experience with multiple trips to these door next to us to get photocopies, to then do something else to do something else. So we are relatively smart individuals, and 30 minutes later, through my numbing exercises, we got out of there. I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody who has not had the education that I have had, and who knows how to work the system in the way in which I do, to try to get a driver's license, to try to get a piece of documentation from sometimes surly workers who don't want you to be there and who would much rather be doing something else. So that's the situation that some people find themselves in when they try to get I didn't think it was the-
1: possible, Denise, that you as a Democrat could tick off public employees the way you just did. That was amazing. Yes. That was amazing. Becca Kaufman. Well,
3: If that's the
6: issue here, and I'm I'm not disagreeing with you, why don't we look at ways
1: to make it easier
6: for people to get IDs instead of going out and saying it's unreasonable and racist to make people show their IDs and prove their age at the ballot? That's not unreasonable. And um, to everyone's point, discussion earlier that we were just talking about, is the GOP trying to dissuade certain groups from coming out to vote? Why is the GOP pouring so much resources into African American outreach, Latino outreach, outreach to women, if they don't want those groups to come out and vote? Obviously, there's going to be implications with laws like this. It, it is more of a class issue, as you were just getting at. But I mean, they want these—they want these groups to come out and vote for them. They're not trying to get people to
4: say, Dan Lipner. Well, but that's what makes the Texas law so amazing—that it, it's so clearly politically crafted that which ids are acceptable and which are not if you have your concealed carry permit that is an acceptable id however Wait a minute. if a hold sorry, on hold Ted,
1: on hold on bob Eines is,
0: is that the only thing you show
4: no no but that's part the question is the other state issued ids as in from your your university a state university not even a private university in texas of which there are also plenty but the state universities in Texas, which you get a student ID which gets you all sorts of things on college campuses, is not an acceptable it ID. You,
1: it it doesn't, doesn't tell you doesn't your state of residency. It doesn't speak to citizenship. No, but it, it does not speak to citizenship. It does A German exchange student can get the, students a student.
4: A well crafted law still could actually have had actually modified that. We're talking about this on as with this law that's already in place, And if you want to talk about actually rectifying this, in Georgia, they actually took a very aggressive stance in making sure the, the poor people in Georgia could actually get voter IDs. There have still been problems with that. Jimmy Carter actually said he didn't see problems with it because the Georgia law subsidized the, the, the poor to be able to get IDs. The only problem that Georgia ended up with that, with their law, was because the poor rural voters didn't live close enough to places to easily be able to get these things, which runs is into an issue with with, with poor seniors to be able to move. So that's where the problem is. But the Texas law is so suspect on exactly how it carves these things out. And I don't know Texas law well enough, but I suspect that you could actually be a resident alien in this country and still carry a concealed weapon, which your Texas ID probably doesn't, doesn't but, but, show, but, but show but he, either. But, he, no, no, but, I mean, but uh, he, if we're going to talk about the ID, you have to you go cannot, exactly what the ID is Okay, first of all... A resident uh, alien and, can have a driver's license as well, it's worth noting. It yeah. does not actually say... Uh, legally, no, I, I, no, no, I, no,
1: no, no I, 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 I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. But there are so many other aspects to this that look, I, I I think we have the consensus. We got to go, we got to move on. We're, we're coming up to the break. But the, the consensus I hear is that number one, the, the idea that the, the, this is GOP based voter suppression is just outrageous. Number it's two, it's on partisan lines. It, it's At, every on, place, Dan, Dan every Dan, place these laws pass, Dan, put on partisan lines. Uh, okay, uh, Dan, oh, you know what, Dan, hey. I'll tell you right now you're talking about a Georgia legislature that was that took an aggressive stance on clarifying it, and that's a Republican governor's mansion and a Republican legislature. They didn't go straight down party lines when they did theirs. Bob Hines, last word. Look, there's only two things you have to be able to prove. You're a citizen and you're 18 years old. And you're a citizen of that jurisdiction where the vote is being conducted.
0: Yes, and once you do that, that that's all there is to it. Now, if we can't figure out a way to get everybody to get those three things and they don't do it, it's their own damn fault. So, yeah. But there has so gotta you, be you the third that's
2: thing. The fourth thing in many is is whether you're a felon or not. Right. Yeah. And and that not that not that not that we've seen a lot of uh elections turn on a bunch of ex felons illegally voting, but it's it's one more Vote. Yeah. It's it's one more general. Yeah, okay. We haven't
1: even it's talked weird. about the Florida voter purge law that happened during the two thousand election, which
4: got everybody spun up. I was on the ground in two thousand As was I. I was the official Democratic Party observer in Dade County on election day two thousand. So I know a little bit about this and how this played out. So yeah. You that, were a kingmaker. I yeah. were a kingmaker in the two thousand election.
1: No you. Hey, by, oh, by hey, the way, way by the way, the way. Hey, 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 guys, you want, you. hey, guys, you, you. you want to see? You want to see? You want to see my invitation? Here's my impression of Dan Lipner on Election Day counting ballots. One. Oh, we were told to stop counting. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Good night, Cleveland. Hey, when we get back, no, oh, oh, Carl, real quickly. He
5: wasn't a kingmaker because we didn't
1: win. That's right. Somebody won. Somebody won. That's right. Actually, we did. (laughs) Anyway, with that being said, when we come back, we're going to talk about the super PACs. GOP super PACs are taking a huge, huge intake of cash. Democrats are raising money like drunk sailors on Liberty. The super PACs are raising a lot of money. We're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, go to www.shelley'sbackroom.com/private-party. Shelley's Backroom—the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the final segment of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to change gears and talk about election funding. We're going to be talking about super PACs. Despite the fact that the Democrats have been kicking Republican butt in money raising, almost 3-1 to this year, in super PAC money raising, the Republicans have had a huge cash windfall over the past FEC filing cycle. But the funny thing about it is when you look at the uh the three biggest conservative packs, uh Carl Rove's American Crossroads, Joe Ricketts uh Ending Spending Action Fund, and of course you have the Koch Brothers Freedom Partners Action Fund, they have raised a crap load of money on the GOP side over the past eight to ten months. It's still does not take away the fact that the, that the Democrats have got super PACs down to a science. Number one, go to uh, Alan Moore. Alan Moore, how is it that the Democrats, who are largely the grassroots get-out-the-vote-and-super PACs are bad, how is it that they've turned it around and turned super PACs into a huge Democratic funding source?
2: There's a, bunch of, there's, a there's a bunch of rich guys who also <laughs> happen to be Democrats.
1: And now they're adding
2: up. So what took them so long? What what, you know took a cycle or two. But but what 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 I love the most is the is the guys who put the big dollars in to to uh, uh, to very wealthy enterprises whose whose primary message is to reduce the influence of spending on elections. I just love the (laughs) the inherent. Irony in uh, in Mega Millions to uh, uh, to initiatives to, to to spend less to restrict uh, the amount that can be spent. It's look some of these guys like George Soros have been around a while. Tom Steyer, the the uh, the, the billionaire equity manager in California, who appears to have some political ambitions of his own, are Weighing in, he says, "Why not spend a hundred million here?" Yeah. Um, and he's a, considers himself an an environmentalist as well.
1: I mean, you're talking about Tom Steyer, Dan Lipner. Tom Steyer has literally been the biggest bankroller of Democratic supportive super PACs over the past eighteen months. He's put his money where his mouth is. Is this something that the Democrats can actually take advantage of right now?
4: Unfortunately, the answer is no. I I, I am on a different plane on this. I, I, uh, I'm. I you quote Patrick Henry. I spell a rat. Uh, the 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 history of the line is when the first Constitutional Congress was put together. That the only people represented were the landed gentry. In this case, yeah. Is Tom Steyer the landed gentry? In this case, yeah. You have a bunch of rich guys dictating policy. In some cases, yeah, it might benefit lefty causes on this, but on this I narrow mean, co- point but actual normal people are not represented in this at all. Denise Krepp, Steyer, just in the past
1: year, has given over $41 million to his uh, super PAC called NextGen. Mm-hmm.
7: Uh,
1: that is a big sum of money for somebody who hates the rich landed gentry. But he has a point. And I, can, I, you
3: know, I see this on a daily basis. I mean, you guys know my, my husband's running for Congress. I mean... You know, it's always hypothetical of, well, what can money do for a race? Well, I know firsthand what money can do for a race. It can buy you TV ads. It can buy you pamphlets. It can buy you people who will go out and work for you. I mean, if you are going to win a race right now, you need to have a lot of money. And if you don't, then you're not going to win. And and that's something people need to be thinking about. You know, when when you start hearing about these millions and millions that are coming from these individuals, they are taking a larger, more, more of the pie in making decisions on who's getting it an elected. And, and, and that is concerning. Carl Tooman. I,
5: I, I really don't think that the Democratic uh, uh, PACs that are doing a lot of this, uh, they don't hold a candle to what I believe the Republicans are doing. The, the I'm Democrats, sure this is your, That's I'm not sure your Carl
7: too, but it, I, it, I, the it, numbers hold it, hold it, hold it. the
5: numbers don't show it. Okay, what what on the Democratic side, uh, the committees, the, the uh, Democratic National Committee, the, the the Senatorial Committee, the Congressional Committee. I mean, I get ten ten letters, ten emails every day from all three asking me to contribute. 5, 10, 15, Wait,
1: but, 20. But whatever? Carl, let me let, just give you a figure, though. Okay? In the 2014 cycle, Democrats have raised $134 million in Super PAC money versus the Republicans' 58. To me, that doesn't sound like... Well, I
5: I, I, I apologize. I I didn't know those, those figures. And thank God that we...
7: Got
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, no, it's, 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 it's also been a very interesting way in which the money has come out. I mean, the Washington Post and others are, are reporting that it's that it, just as you said—it's all doom and gloom. Because I mean, I'm getting the same emails as Carla. It's, it's oh, it's you know, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible. Therefore, you need to spend money. Now, I, I understand that, and that encourages people to spend money. But what I would really hope, as being a candidate and being a candidate twice, that people would spend more time thinking about who they are electing and less time trying to figure out how they're going to get the money
4: out of their wallet. Right. We, let, we need a few more facts from the field. Uh, Alan mentioned it, the, the, of PACs versus super PACs versus C3s versus C4s. C4s are special. Those numbers aren't really out there publicly. So we only know what's publicly reported. And so, yes, the Democrats have figured this out. However, and this is where I'm going, I'm going to take a shot on my own party and my own president on this front. Um President Obama, the one and only publicly funded election we used to have in this country was the the election for president. And then in 2008, uh, the Obama crew, initially, uh, then Senator Obama, was all in favor of public funding for elections until somebody figured out that because of this particular president, we could, if we refused the public funding, we could actually raise and spend more money, which he ended up doing both in 2008 and 2012. Wow. So our credibility on this point is negligible at best, because if this president were actually a leader, he would have said, even though I am capable of raising more money because I believe in publicly funded elections, which we all have on that, our tax forms every year, we can check off how many dollars we'd like to donate to the presidential election fund. He would have He would have stood up and said, this should not only occur for the presidential level, but every federal race down to
1: And Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee instead of Obama. Bob no, I'm Hines. Talk,
4: I'm talking about actually no, being president. A that was general election. He would have been he, McCain
2: anyway. He was actually yeah. taking,
4: yeah. He was taking the, the, the federal matching yeah. funds yeah. during the primary, as was Hillary, as was everyone else. Yeah. Bob Hines.
0: You know, there's tons and tons of money in the campaigns. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that the Democrats have... Uh, have have got a great ground game, probably the Republicans are trying to catch up with one, and I think they're doing better than they've ever done before. Thank God because they've ever done it very well. But the fact of the matter is the money is there, and they're and, and, and unless we decide as a nation that we don't want to spend money on campaigns, which I thought will never happen. The reality is it's going to continue now you know this, is as long my view is I don't care how much money is spent donated gifted whatever you want to call it as long as it is all on the table as long as it's on the table then that gives you a decision as the guy who or gal has received it you want it or don't you want it you want to take it from that person or that group or you don't and as simple as that and if you want to take it and you take it you take the responsibility of dealing with it whatever happens but the fact of the matter is that's the American
3: way right now. Denise, correct. It is, and I want to give you some real-world examples. I and mean, when I look at outside and I see a bunch of signs that we have here in D.C., yard signs right now are going between ten and fourteen dollars each. T-shirts are going anywhere between four and eight dollars each. A mailing could be a $1 dollar to a dollar fifty, depending on if you put a stamp on it or if you have somebody walk it around. And that, by the way. That's just that cost. That's not your employee cost. Okay. That's not your, you know, having a campaign office. Those costs mount up significantly, and they mount up quickly. And that's not ad time. I mean, these are the costs that people have to pay in order to run. And we should be looking at that and saying, wait a second. That is a high hurdle for elected officials.
1: And, and, Bob
0: you, and you can't say, hey, I'll pay you next month. you got to pay can't. today. By,
1: by the way but Alan Moore, you know we talk about the c fours we t- we talk about the as you know we we still don't have total transparency in the super PAC community as far as where the money's coming from how the money is being divided up, and where exactly this uh you know who, who sits on these super PAC boards uh It's something that the FEC has no control over it's something that the the general electorate aren't Cognizant of the influence that these super PACs have, is this now an opportunity for America to come together and say, "Hey, look, we need total transparency in all the super PACs, or are we never going to see that
2: well okay there's there are distinctions between PACs, which identify which their are gifts, which are regulated which give their which which identify their gifts and this and the so called c fours social welfare <laughs> in in quotes organizations <laughs> um which, which clearly have become a, a, a major loophole here. Uh, they've really got nothing to do, and we can debate this another time, with the, the famous Citizens United case. I think you can explain C-4s a little bit. Uh, that, that, hold C, on. C, C-4s are, 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 are membership organizations whose primary purpose is some kind of social message. Most trade associations are set up as under the tax laws, and that's what C4, 501C4 is the section of the tax law that, that outlines the rules for the operation of these things. What's happened is we've we've seen this enormous growth in these so-called C4s, where very wealthy individuals, maybe a handful of them, will, can put tens of millions of dollars uh, in the aggregate, 100 million or more, and they are not allowed to endorse a candidate, but what they typically do is say, If you don't like a particular issue, call your congressman and tell him to cut it out. So there's definitely a political message that identifies, usually it's an enemy of the candidate that that is being supported. The massive amounts of money, the, the donors don't have to be reported. The impact of these things, these organizations, is still a matter of considerable debate. Hundreds of millions of dollars were spent in the last presidential election against Obama and, and, uh, and some other candidates by these so-called C4 organizations, they didn't do that well. That doesn't mean they failed or or always lost. The transparency issue is an interesting one because what we see now in America is the more a particular individual is willing to identify himself as a donor. The more likely, depending upon what, what kind of business he's in, the more likely he is to be subject to attacks by people like Harry Reid on the floor of the United States Senate or other groups that decide we're going to boycott this person's employer. Transparency for transparency's sake sounds like a good thing, but there's no free lunch ever anywhere. People, people who are just rich, they don't care. But if they're associated with a business or the head of a business that might be vulnerable to some sort of consumer attack or consumer boycott, have got to be super careful. I think we haven't figured out the right way to do this yet.
4: No, I, and I, I agree with Alan entirely. And the and that leads to, in, in reference to what Alan was talking about, Harry Reid talked about the Koch brothers who were called out on the floor of the House. And they the, the, excuse me, the floor of the Senate, excuse me. Um, and the disproportionate reach. But one of those issues that is the dog that didn't bark, even though Americans across the country have been hurt and hurt badly by it, but it has been a glaring non-political issue, is the housing issue. all has been an issue for more than a small bit of time. For years, Americans have been struggling with this and dealing with the banks and various different things. And nobody's attacking this issue. And the question might be, why? And because they have feet in both houses. And so it's in nobody's interest to actually raise this issue because nobody is funding that conversation. And as long as that is what is at play, normal Americans that are actually being hurt and injured by the status quo don't have a voice. And worse yet, have no politicians even talking to the issue. Denise crap.
3: Okay, I agree with you. There's a lot of money being being tossed at these races by very few people that just got, you know, six, seven figures income. That's fine. But my question to the general public is, why are you listening to this? And why are you not making up your own mind? And I think we as Americans have to do that. We have to say, you know, clutter, 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 I understand I that, push. but you need to be able to say why am I going to push the button For a certain person. And it's more than just because they don't like this
4: or they don't like that. Dan Lipner. I can answer that question with ease. Having worked in campaigns all across the country, what all of us here have taken two hours out of our lives in a working day to appear on this show. This is not regular America. Regular America works hard, very, very hard. The median income for the average household, or median income for... A household in the United States is fifty-four thousand dollars a year. That's not—it's not a bad number, but not a tremendous sum of money. They work hard for that, and on top of that, they have to do things like, you know, go to work, pay the bills. There's daycare. There's kids that are have their football games. Not to mention, if you want to actually have a social life, it actually takes a great deal of time and effort. And they're relying and relying. To to their detriment and to our detriment on those political ads, those mailings that come out to try and inform them on the issues at play, even though the actual issues that hit them day to day are almost never discussed. You're describing
3: my life. You're describing EPA. You're describing kids. You're describing work. I understand all of those challenges, but we as Americans owe it to ourselves if we are going to complain. If you don't like a Democrat, if you don't like a Republican. Fine. Then it is your responsibility as an American to get educated. That is your job.
1: Okay, I'm going to let that be the last word because uh, we're running up on time. Because now it's time for my favorite segment of the show. Tell me a story where we talk about the latest, greatest rumors, innuendos, and scoops that we can bring inside the Beltway, outside the Beltway, and across America. Bob Hines, tell me a story.
0: The Republicans will win the Senate, <laughs> and I, I think they. I think it's more likely. Uh, now than it has been in the last month, I think that it will probably be something like 52, 48.
1: Wow. Carl Toobin, tell me a story. Leon Panetta
5: was in uh, a town last week, and went to several places with his book. Um, I went to uh, 6 and I, the synagogue, to hear him. Uh, Leon and I have known each other since he came to Congress. Also, Norm Manetta and I have known each other uh, since, they, since he came to Congress, and all week I was thinking, well, it's, it's, it's Norm that's coming. You know, I was so engrossed in, in the wedding planning I couldn't get in my face. So Norm came and he, and he talked about the fact that uh, <clears throat> during the Obama, the Obama administration, when one was transportation, the other was uh, uh, defense, <clears throat> that uh, when the Japanese premier came to this country. <clears throat> they invited Leon Panetta to come. And when the Italian president came to this country, they invited Normanetta to come to the White House. Interesting. <laughs> Good story. So, 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 they they started with the books and you know these book signings and you know, they they say, you know regards. Da, 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 and you're going to hardly have to think. So I go up, and I say to him, Norm, and then I realize, and he looked at me and says, Carl. And we both burst out laughing. We must have laughed for two minutes. And he says, give me your book back. And then he writes to Carl.
7: <laughs>
1: and it was absolutely incredible. Good story. Becca Kaufman, tell me a story. Um,
6: yesterday, in an interview with ABC Denver, Mark Udall referred to himself as brain dead and said that the questions the reporter was asking him were too tough. (laughs) Some of the questions were like, what song have you listened to recently and what's your favorite book? And he literally could not answer.
1: Good Lord. Denise, crap, tell me a story quick.
3: (laughs) As the wife of the candidate, I understand why he said he was brain dead. It's exhausting. And you know, what's frustrating for us here in DC because of my husband's race Eleanor's refusing to debate my husband. So we're about to have an election here in D.C. without a debate. And as somebody who has served in the military, has voted her entire life, I'm extremely disappointed that we have a congressional race where the sitting member thinks that she can just inherit the seat because she's been doing it for 20 years.
1: Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story.
2: Yeah, I've been watching uh, with great interest the uh, the Kansas Senate race. Uh, Pat Roberts, a uh, longtime incumbent, and somebody who's uh, who with his family or friends of mine, uh, which I've acknowledged in the past. So I'm sort of all in for him, but I've been watching with concern. He's been he's he's been the, pretty much closed the gap. He was down as much as ten points to this guy Greg Orman, who is. Who, who has run this race of saying, I don't know which party I'm going to affiliate with. I'll affiliate with whoever's in the majority. That'll be best for Kansas. And I'm not going to take positions on most issues. He, he, he got out front and peaked early. Roberts cleaned up uh, and improved his operation, and outsiders have come in and said, do you really want to elect a guy who stands for, uh, who stand on issues He will not describe. He will not say. And I'm reminded of other times in history where people peak too early, and it should make all of us around the table humble. We still have a couple of weeks. Things happen when in the year 2000, a dead governor who was killed in a plane crash just before an election beat a sitting senator. Um, all because the sitting senator, John Ashcroft, l- later attorney general, had to be quiet and not campaign. And the word was, you vote for our late, great governor, and the and the, the lieutenant governor, now serving as governor, will name his, his wife, his widow, to the Senate seat. It happened. It, had that election gone on another few weeks, I don't think it would have happened like that. Timing? Can be everything, and it Absolutely. keeps us humble.
4: Absolutely, Dan Littner, quickly tell me a story. Uh, continuing the theme of the dogs did not bark. Um, in a since 2008, American oil production has gone up 60 percent. Well, the price per barrel has, formerly well in excess of $100 a barrel, is now close to $80 a barrel. Put another way, uh, under the drill baby drill premise that. Political rhetoric has no consequences whatsoever. Under the Obama administration, the U.S. is the most oil independent it's been in decades and has gotten no credit for it whatsoever.
2: It deserves none. It has nothing to do with it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Excel pipeline. That's it. That's nothing to Excel pipeline. Excel pipeline. That's it. Go the Excel pipeline. Absolutely nothing to do with
3: Excel
2: so, pipeline.
1: So,
3: my,
1: yeah, that's yeah, right. Go the so, the pipeline. yeah, build the pipeline. So anyway, um, my story is last night the uh, the the G O P had their Lincoln dinner last night, and the guest speaker was a very animated and very energetic Joe Scarborough, host of Morning Joe on ironically M S N B C uh in the in the in the let's see almost 24 years I've been a registered Republican I have never heard such a moderated voice and such an energetic voice for the GOP to truly get its head out of its rear end and start thinking correctly about the future than I heard out of Joe Scarborough last night. If more Republicans down at the RNC heard what Joe Scarborough is saying and heard the moderate majority that is in our party speak, we would not have the political problems that we have internally, and we would see a more robust and a more influential GOP unlike we've seen before. Kudos to Joe Scarborough for actually coming out and speaking sensibly about the direction of our party Versus the party line and the rhetoric That we see out of RNC That being said, on behalf of Bob Hines, who joined us Directly from Michigan today
7: you?
1: Thank you very much On behalf of Bob Hines Carl Tubin, Rebecca Kaufman Denise Krepp, Alan Moore Dan Littner uh, I am your host moderator, Justin Russell We will be back next week For another edition Of the Best Political Talk Show You've Never Heard This is Backroom Politics live from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. That's right, Bob. You can follow us online at www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Backroom Politics, or you can email me your questions, concerns, comments, or hate mail at justin at backroompolitics.org. We will see you next week, America. Have a great one. Bye-bye.